So as I was planning this message um, for this morning, I was reminded that in this very room, I experienced a lot of first things. Um, The first time for me to sit with an American women's Bible study was in this room. The first time for me to hear, um, to ever hear a woman preach was in this room. The first time for me to almost audibly hear the words of God about what he would have me do in ministry was in this room. And the first time for me to ever preach a message was on this very stage. And so this space here holds a lot of great memories a lot of tangible things that happen between me and the Lord in this room. So it is a privilege for me to be here. I am so excited to be here among you. And I pray that the same transformation that took place in my life as I was in this room takes place in your lives as well. Let us pray so um, we can begin and hear what God has for us today. Father, um, It is good to remember. It is good to go back and see what you have been up to all these years. It is good to be among women, those that you have called, those that you love and cherish, and those that you have a mission and a purpose for. And so this morning, remind us of your mission, remind us of your purpose, Give us a vision for what you will have us do and how you will have us transform our communities, our families, and our lives. So take the lead this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So many of you already know I was born in Haiti and I grew up in New Jersey. And when my family first immigrated from Haiti... We did what most immigrant families do. We crammed everyone in a small living space because we lacked the money to get something bigger. So picture this with me, a family of eight in a 2.5 bedroom, one bath, one TV to share, no formal dining room to have dinner, one small refrigerator, and from time to time, My mother and father had the audacity to bring extra people who were in need from our church. Oh, yeah, they did. I hated our living situation. I always thought, I thought America was supposed to be the land flowing with milk and honey to improve the quality of life of families. This is not quality. So when I received the scholarship to go off to college, I took it. And I never looked back and went back to that apartment. (laughs) Living in such close quarters was hard. Having to deal with the lack of space was suffocating. The personality differences were hard to navigate. And having to share everything with everyone was so annoying. (laughs) So when I read Acts 2, verses 42 to 44 about the first church and the closeness of their community, I know firsthand the kinds of drama 
and difficulties that can ensue from that kind of arrangement. I know the kinds of tension that can rise up with that kind of arrangement. One of my seminary professors would always use the phrase, embrace the tension, embrace the tension, especially when talking about tension points found in theology and the church. And so today, I want to use the term to talk about the church and our call to be a racially inclusive church. So the theme or title for our message today is Embrace the Tension because we have a mission to fulfill. Tension makes us feel uncomfortable. It creates this thing called cognitive dissonance. I'm also a therapist, so I'm using this term I learned in grad school that every last one of us have experienced at some point of time. Cognitive dissonance means when a person has contrary thoughts, ideas, or beliefs. It creates emotional discomfort and tension, and instantly this person enters this process of removing or minimizing the tension or the dissonance by a number of strategies, one of which is to lie to oneself. So today, for the sake of honesty in the house of the Lord, when you feel the tension rising up throughout my message, don't lie to yourself. Embrace the tension. When you feel like you want to throw something at me, embrace the tension, okay? When you feel like calling the heresy police to take me out and burn me at the stake, embrace the tension. Hold it, place it at the feet of Jesus so we can learn how to be fully about our Father's mission in the church. The reason we must embrace the tension we find in the church is because the mission of the church has not and it will not change. It continues to be where Jesus calls us to be about fulfilling his mission. The mission of the church is where you will see the great commandment and the great commission beautifully intersect right there at that intersection is where you will find the mission of the church. We won't spend too much time on the great commission today, partly because if we do the great commandment well, the great commission will be activated. So today we will spend some time looking at the great commandment found in Matthew 22, 34 to 40, which reads, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Looking to entrap Jesus... The Pharisees thought they'd give it a shot since the Sadducees had failed at winning any sort of a debate with Jesus. So they thought, let us use, let us see if you truly know your Torah. What exactly is the greatest commandment? 
You know, I'm always puzzled by this question because it doesn't take someone as all-knowing as Jesus to know the answer to this question. It's a basic question. Everyone should have known the answer to this basic question. Whether you're religious or non-religious, a heathen or Satan himself. But if you profess to be a follower of Christ, you should know the answer to this fundamental question. What is the greatest and most important thing about our faith? In other words, what is it that defines who we are as Christians? What gives us our identity as Christians? About a week ago, I was having a conversation with our boys in our kitchen, and we started talking about the fear of the Lord. They said something about being afraid of someone. And one twin goes, I'm not afraid of anyone. And I said, that's right. That's right. No one. The only one you should be afraid of is God. And that's when they put on the brakes. They instantly fired back and they're like, mom, you're a pastor and you're telling us to be afraid of God. How can one be afraid of their father? We should love him, not afraid of him. I couldn't find any theological words to retort back. Because they were right. They had a point. Their response stopped, stopped me dead in my tracks, just like Jesus did the Pharisees. He told them, you should love the Lord with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. And for us in the church, this is where we must always begin with our focus on our vertical relationship with God. And I'm not just talking about the kind of shallow, overused word love that we say over and over again that loses its depth and meaning. I'm talking about the crazy kind of love that makes you over and over again choose God and put him first. I'm talking about the kind of love that makes you do radical and crazy things because you understand the depths of love he has for us. I'm talking about the kind of love that makes you pull over your car to worship in that very moment you realize the depth of love the Father has for us. You ever did that? I have. Okay, I'm, I'm the only, you know, radical Christian here. Okay. I'm talking about the kind of love that makes you choose him over family. And when your family starts acting crazy, you choose God. And when your, your children have lost their minds, you choose God and your devotion to him to not put a hurt on them kids. <laughs> and when your friends have lost their minds, you choose God and stay on mission. And when your church is preaching some crazy heretical mess and your pastor has lost her mind, talking about some Jesus is coming April 1st, bring your tithes and offering before he does, you choose God devotion and you stay in the Bible. And when you have lost your identity and you can't differentiate between your love for God and your love for your nation, it is time to recommit your love and dedication to God. Somebody is right now saying, ouch. I thought I saw somebody scratch their head a little bit. Now, remember, I said, embrace the tension. Because we have a mission to fulfill. 
We must be reminded of our first love and our greatest commandment to obey is to love the Lord with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. That's how we're going to fulfill our mission. That's how we're going to fulfill this mission in the church. We must first nurture our vertical relationship with God and the depths of our love for God is drawn from his love to us. This week is Holy Week. As we reflect on Jesus' journey to death by crucifixion on the cross because of his great love for us. And that's why we love him, because he first loved us. When our vertical relationship is deeply rooted in Christ, when our identity is secured in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when we have developed the disciplines to choose God over and over again, when we realize that the who that we are is only by the grace of God, our next and natural steps ought to be to work on our horizontal relationships with one another. It's a direct flow from our vertical relationship to horizontal relationship. And Jesus continued in verse 39, and he said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, this part of the text always causes me to pause because it doesn't say to love your neighbor more than yourself. And it doesn't say to love your neighbor less than yourself, but as yourself. And I wonder if it is because of our sin nature, Jesus knows instinctively we're going to go for self-preservation first before we can go for other preservation. He knows that. Jesus knows we're going to preserve our marriages before we go after preserving other people's marriages, right? It's only right. He knew that we would go after preserving our children first before going after preserving other people's children. But he also said that same love and instinctive need for preservation that you have for yourself, your marriages, your relationship, your relationships, your children. You must have it for your neighbors. Love them as yourself. I know one of the questions that always come up when studying this passage is always, who is my neighbor? Who are those neighbors that I'm supposed to love as myself? And boy, does God define it for us. It's almost as if God knew we would have this question about who our neighbors would be. And he purposefully, purposely sprinkled the answer to this question all over the Bible. In Leviticus 19, it refers to neighbor as the poor, the foreigner. In Isaiah 58, the oppressed, the naked, those in prison. In James 1, the widow, the orphans. On and on it goes. All throughout the Bible, God was strategic in defining who is a neighbor for us. It's as if he knew instinctively we would gravitate towards neighboring with people that look like us, thought like us, shop at the same supermarket as us, vote like us. And we instinctively would find ourselves in these bubbles created by our own hands. 
So Jesus said in Luke 6, 33, 35, and if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom, expe- whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to other sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But you love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be great children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. And in Leviticus 19, it says, 1934, it says, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. He said, you must treat them as your native son. Treat them as family, God says. That same self-preservation you have for your family you're supposed to have for your neighbor. And who is your neighbor? Potentially everyone in our communities, our local and international. Now, right now, I know the tension is rising up. I can feel the defense. But Jesus was referring to this person or that person, not me. Surely not. Or it was a different time. Things have changed. What are we supposed to do? Open the door to all kinds of criminals? We have to protect ourselves. That's right. Protect ourselves. Protect yourself and protect your neighbors too. Embrace that tension. Write it down somewhere right now. Don't dismiss it and don't defend it. Just embrace it because we have a mission to fulfill in the church. Our church is a multi-ethnic church, and I'll talk a little bit later more about this. But a year ago, we started a racial reconciliation group. And one of the members in the group shared a couple months into the meeting saying, I thought I'd come to this group so I can learn things to share with my non-Christian friends about unity and racial reconciliation. But I'm now realizing we need this first. You see, we were so quick on making disciples and evangelizing those that were out there that we neglected what was going on in here. We neglected to truly see our neighbors of different ethnicities. And I'm not just talking about seeing their color or anything like that, their physical attributes. I'm talking about truly seeing and knowing their experiences, their lives and their stories. We became too addicted with comfort and settled for comfort worship with those that only look like us. And to make matters worse, we became colorblind. I love my well-meaning Christian friends when, when they say, we love everyone. We don't see color. And I think I understand the sentiment. I think it's coming from a good place. A place that says, I want to include everyone. I love everyone. I get it. But the problem with that statement is not only are you blind to people's color, to people of color's unique stories, their joys and celebrations, but you're also blind to their pain 
And when they're crying out for justice, you can't see it or hear it because you're colorblind. That's why today I'm asking all of us to embrace the tension, embrace the discomfort in the church, because we have a mission to fulfill in the church. You see, Jesus did not give us a way out. He did not give us a free pass from doing his work. So we embrace the tension when it comes. We embrace the tension when it comes to all of these people we have left out and not included on our list of neighbors. Moms, aunts, daughters, friends of moms, teachers. Let's take a deep breath and embrace the tension in this room right now. We need to talk. We need to talk publicly about this. I understand self-preservation, I get it. I understand protecting our families and children. I understand keeping the bad out. I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm a pastor, I'm an aunt, a sister, a daughter. I have a lot of people I need to protect. I get it. But Jesus did not give us a way out of loving our neighbors as ourselves. Not only is he calling us to individually love our neighbors, but to advocate and speak on their behalf and make room for them to speak up. He wants us to question how our communities are loving our neighbors too. He wants us to question the new zoning practices that seem to be creating a divide from those people out there and our children. He wants us to question about the railroad tracks placed in the middle of town creating a physical division. He wants us to question why our children's schools have the best of everything, state-of-the-art technology, and just a few miles down the road they barely have books to read from. He wants us to question why this demographic of children get in trouble more than another. He wants us to question why certain immigrant groups are allowed in and certain ones are not allowed in. He wants us to question why a group of our friends in the church are getting denied for mortgages while another group is not. And why is a certain group found in prison more than others. You see, radical love for Jesus and our neighbors is not passive, it's active. You say you love me, prove it. Love me as yourself. Love, love other people's children as you love your own. Fight for them, advocate for them. Love other people's families as you love your own. Embrace that tension. It's here. I know it is. Our vertical relationship with God must translate into a horizontal relationship for others and a horizontal love for others. He expected from the depths of love that we have for him that we would have the same love for our neighbors, the poor, the foreigner, the refugee, the immigrant, the orphans and widow, and make space for them in this church. And if we truly make space for them, we need to be aware of their entire being, not just their physical presence. That includes their issues 
and their social pain as well. So we need to embrace the tension that's in the room right now and not dismiss it for cheap unity. And I say cheap, cheap unity because we often show up, sing and pray and do our little kumbaya. You know what we do. And then we go home, not realizing that the brown sister at your table is scared to death that her black son will not be treated fairly or worse yet, might not make it home alive. Or this other sister at your table is afraid her brother will be deported. And she can't share that with any sisters in Bible study out of fear and shame. You can't ask me to show up and not bring all of me. You gotta accept all of me, my stories, my worries, my pain, all of me. Can you handle my pain is the question. Can you handle each other's pain truly, all of it? We must work through the tension of loving one another deeply in order to go about our father's mission in the church. Like I said earlier, I'm currently a pastor in a church that is intentionally a multi-ethnic church. And we know a thing or two about tension. We listen to whole podcasts on tension. I'm serious. Just recently, my lead pastor and I were processing a podcast we listened to on tension in a multi-ethnic church. That's how serious we are. It's hard to be an intentional multi-ethnic church and not engage the conversation of racial tensions. Not just in the world, but in the church. It's hard to live out the great commandment and not point out the elephant in the room. Sunday mornings continue to be the most segregated day of the week. There's something wrong with that. We continue to be more and more divided along the issue of race in the church. And the pain gets deeper and deeper and it festers. It's time for us to repent and admit we have lost our way. We have not lived out Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, because we're all one in Christ Jesus. We have grown numb, silent, and perhaps unintentionally contributed to the racial divide we now see in the church. It's time to embrace that tension because together we have a mission to fulfill. In our church, we are nowhere close to being a true multi-ethnic church that has arrived on racial reconciliation. But about a year ago, we made an announcement in our church of less than 200, that we are going to start a racial reconciliation group. And more than 20 people showed up for that first meeting. Now I have to give it to them. We were a predominantly white church and we still are. And they had no clue what the formula for racial reconciliation entailed, neither did I, but they showed up. And so to end today's message, I want to share a few things we've learned about the journey of being a racially inclusive church. And most of these lessons came out of our time of being together as a racial, in our racial reconciliation meetings. The first thing is 
to show up. Just show up. Show up to the conversation. You do not have to have it all figured out. You do not have to have read a book on Dr. King, Rosa Parks, or Malcolm X. Just show up. You do not have to understand all the issues. Just show up. You do not have to know all the right things to say or the correct way to talk lovingly to different groups. Just show up. Now, a person that just shows up knows that that there's a great deal in that message, that you are secure in your faith in Jesus Christ. You are secure in your vertical relationship with Jesus Christ, that now you're ready to just show up with your brothers and sisters. Number two says, in number two, show up with a humble heart. Now, if you show up thinking you know all there is to know about racial issues in the church and our world, good luck. Don't say I didn't warn you. Humility goes a long way. It's okay to say I grew up with a different perspective, but I'm open to hearing yours. Number three, educate yourself. This is the age of technology. There's a ton of information out there. Don't just use your one or two brown um, friends to be your only teacher. Brown people are a little tired these days. (laughs) They're teaching everywhere. Just a little. Um, Number four, get close in proximity. If there's one thing that softens the human heart, it's getting close and personal. One of the things that's meant a lot to me and preserved my relationship with many white sisters is they got close. They text me to breakfast. I have a few of them here in this room. They'd ask personal questions like, Jula, tell me how you felt about the recent shooting of that black boy in the news. news. They'd give me space. We'd cry about it, and we'd be ticked off about it together. And then we'd eat our salads. And we don't just meet once. We do it over and over again, cultivating relationship. They literally entered my pain, even if they don't personally experience that level of pain. They join me. You have no idea how healing that is for a black woman like me and brown people all around. It's important to have you as an ally. Number five, lean into the pain. And this is a a number of things. I, I wanted to keep my numbers short, so here it goes. Lean into the pain of your brothers and sisters. Lament with them. Ask for forgiveness and offer forgiveness. Learn to publicly process racial pain together. That's what we're doing here right now. Publicly process racial pain together. Two nights ago, our church had a racial reconciliation meeting on immigration. The speaker is a community organizer that attends our church, and he encouraged us to publicly process racial pain together. There's such great depth in, in doing something like that. Number six, don't leave. It's a form of rejection. When the tension gets too great... The tendency is to lead, leave, to evade, to not show up, to walk out, 
please don't leave. Many brown people have been rejected over and over and over again by society, by church. When you leave, it's painful. And when we leave, pursue us. Find out why. Sit with us. Don't just let us leave like that. Number seven, create a safe atmosphere when all, where all can truly be, be and feel welcomed and thrive. This last one is probably one of the most important advice that I can give. They're all important, but if this one is not done well, we can't do the other six. Create a safe atmosphere where we can all truly feel welcome and thrive. Jesus' ministry on earth is filled with examples where he spoke and behaved in ways that made others feel welcome and safe. The Sermon on the Mount for me is one of my favorite examples found in Matthew 5, where he over and over again said, bless, 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 welcome, welcome, welcome. Here is a place for you. With me, you are safe. You will Find love and acceptance and respect, and you will be blessed, he said. In the church, we must create a safe environment where all can authentically praise and worship. Now, you all look like kind-hearted people, loving people, devoted to doing the work of Christ. However, we all have blind spots, and I have them. And we can unintentionally exclude others without realizing what you're doing to be, to be exclusionary. I know I have my blind spots. And to answer the question of creating a safe atmosphere, I reached out to some of my women of color to help paint the picture of what a church that is intentionally racially inclusive and safe look like. And so here's some of their response. Be genuine about your smiles, handshakes, and conversations. Make an attempt at a real relationship with me. Another one said, I will have my guard up until I feel like I can relax. As a counselor, I'm like, that's trauma language right there. The person have their guards up until they feel safe enough to relax. Another one says, how you interact with my children is very telling if you are a safe place. Another one says, when I'm able to talk about racial disparities and not be silenced or others, so far, it hasn't happened. The minute I share with my white sisters about disparities, I get, why are you so angry? Another one says, seeing women affirmed, seeing women in leadership serving up front tells me this is a safe place. Another one says, being told explicitly, you have a voice and you matter. Another one says not being shut down or have this stigma placed on you when you speak about your experiences. Another one says seeing how they treat other black women and other women of color. The visible presence of women and men of color in leadership is another safe gesture. Another one says brown children Chosen to be on stage, chosen to speak, chosen to play games, black children not being disciplined more than white children. Here's another one. 
Now, this one might tug on your heart a little bit. Embrace the tension. One, if there's an American flag on stage or a white picture of Jesus on stage, I'm out, this sister says. Am I greeted warmly, she said, when I walk in? Are the people and their children staring dumbly as I pass by? Or are we just waiting for the ushers to do their jobs? It's all of our jobs when somebody new comes to church, right? Another one says, when they describe their missions work, does it sound like colonialism? Hmm. Another one says, when I peruse a church's website, if the leadership and staff all look the same, but they throw the custodial staff in there for color, I'm out. If the pictures on the site look like parishioners, but the people of color look like stock pictures, I'm out. The second to last is when people of color share their experiences, believe them. This last one broke my heart. She said, I have no answer. This is how worn out I am. Even in churches in Nigeria, where I'm from, and where it wasn't about race, my womanhood wasn't, was rarely affirmed. So I just realized that I don't actually know what a safe church looked like. Embrace the tension. We have a lot of work to do in the church. About a week ago, I preached at my home church, and it was a peculiar Sunday because all of my boys were in church. And usually, they're either at work or my oldest is on a college campus in Abilene. After I delivered my message, this older woman of color, who is a regular attender, but not for very long, gathered my boys up, and started talking to them, saying all kinds of words of encouragement. It's almost as if she knew she had a mission to fulfill, and our boys were a part of that mission. She had never met them before. She didn't care what they think of this five-foot crazy old woman. She didn't care they were bigger and over six feet tall. She just had words of encouragement to share, she had a blessing to pronounce over them, and that's exactly what she did. She embraced the tension because she knew her mission, and our children were a part of that mission. You see, loving on my children is a part of your mission. I don't care if you have children of your own or don't have children or if you're single. You're everyone's mama, and I'm everyone's mama. We're all responsible for loving these young men and others like them. We're responsible for protecting them and loving them as our own. So embrace the tension that you have with these young men, my young men, and all of God's children, your neighbors, because we have a mission to fulfill in the church. Let us pray. Father, we're just going to take a deep breath to embrace 
the tension and what we have heard here. Some of it was hard for me to grapple with. But part of the reason we have this divide in the church is because we are not grappling with these thoughts and ideas and, and this message. We're not talking publicly. And so thank you for modeling what it looks like to publicly heal, pub publicly lament, publicly embrace the tension. Father, we need you. The only way we're going to fulfill our mission is through you, through your spirit, through your power. So help us, guide us, love us, lead us, help us to love one another. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.